you are successful as a business leader by finding someone with untapped potential and letting them grow with you, right? But at the same time, yeah, if you read in and assume that they're going to punch so far above anything they've done before, that's probably a recipe for disappointment. Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers, their inspiration, and their vision for the future of digital business. I'm your host, David Wright. The world of digital business is evolving faster than ever, and I want this to be a place where digital business champions create a village to band together and help each other navigate the ever-changing terrain. Disruptive Innovators features conversations with CIOs and digital leaders from around the world, diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. Good afternoon, friends. David Wright here. And I am your host of the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business Podcast. And today I am lucky enough to be joined by Alice Cathcart. Alice, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to get into it here. For those of our listeners who may not know, though, can you tell everyone just a little bit about your current role? Yeah, I'm the Chief Information Officer at GoodLeap. We are a sustainable home improvement lending platform and software provider. So we help U.S. homeowners improve the sustainability of their homes. We finance solar investments, insulation, windows, high efficiency HVAC, that sort of thing. And we also really see as our additional clients, our contractor partners, who are looking to expand their business by having access to a really easy to use financing platform. Yeah, it's so, so crucial. You know, some of the listeners know that I have some endeavors in the, you know, sustainability world. So I've been really looking forward to this conversation. I also like to ask Alice just to kind of start things off. What's one piece of actionable advice you might look to, to leave with everyone today? That is a great and very open-ended question. I would say important thing for me, the most freeing thing for me, I think in my career, both professionally and personally, is to figure out how to be authentic. You know, I've read so much recently about how we all have the same 168 hours a week. We all have limited time on this earth and time is the only thing you cannot get back. And I think the best way to waste that is to spend it doing something that's important to somebody else, not to you. And so I think figuring out what speaks to you individually and your heart and try to figure out how to make a career and a life out of that is what's most important, ultimately. And when you're in your 20s, that never makes any sense at all when you're at the beginning of your career. It feels like you have a ton of time and goes fast. I totally identify with that. And I'll tell you, when I started the podcast, I originally thought it was just going to be like this tech podcast. And, you know, we've had some guests where we've ended up talking about 
religion, about spirituality, about life, you know, because it's all integrated. In my experience, the things that I did to grow personally had some of the biggest impact on my professional career, right? For whatever it's worth. So I like to try to be as vulnerable as possible. And, uh, you know, with that, let's talk a little bit just about your journey as a person or as an executive, kind of where you started out. I know that you didn't start in technology, right? No, not exactly. I was a biology major as an undergrad, and I did my master's degree in environmental science and climate policy. And my first job out of graduate school, I actually worked for the U.S. Geological Survey as a geographic scientist. And I loved my job when I described it. And then I would find myself, by the time I had been there for a year, I was just, I was really struggling. I could barely pay. I couldn't actually pay my rent on the peninsula in San Francisco Bay Area. Couldn't afford my rent on a government GS9 salary. And I thought, what am I doing with myself? This is crazy. But I knew I liked, I cared a lot about the environment. I knew I wanted to solve problems. To be completely honest, my first path into technology was a couple of friends recruited me to be a technical program manager at Intuit. And, you know, that was just an unbelievable stroke of luck in the sense that it was a very supportive company, very well run, super inspiring, right? Just really known for product management, trying to understand how to solve consumer and and small business problems. And I just fell in love with the business world. I was like, oh my goodness, these are my people. I didn't have a business background at all in my family. Everybody was lawyers and academics. And so I really had no idea. It would never have occurred to me in a thousand years to get an MBA. But that was kind of the entree. And I thought, okay, this is my tribe. And then it took me a little while to figure out how to marry that with my passion for the environment and the the kind of one of the most, frankly, salient and existentially serious problems of our time, in my opinion, which is climate change. And so I pretty quickly came around over the next sort of 10-ish years of my career to figuring out I wanted to work in renewable energy and really demonstrate that you can do good in the world by doing well and vice versa. Climate change is not a problem that anybody is going to solve by collecting donations $25 at a time. So I really identified pretty early on that you have to make it profitable for the large sovereign funds, hedge funds, big, large banks to invest in how to decarbonize human activity if you're going to have an impact. And so that's kind of what the last 15 plus years, well, you know, one and a half years since I'm 25. But but yeah, so, so the last big chunk of my career has really been about that. It's really been about renewable energy and kind of marrying how much I love business and how much I love the space between technology and business and really moving companies that are doing big things in high growth space to so solve problems that no one's ever solved before or no one's ever solved at scale. Yeah. I mean, super exciting stuff. And like you said, I mean, if we're not starting to address it now, my children's children will be in deep doo-doo. You know, it's like people think it's this thing that's just like so far out, but it's like, it's really not. No, it's really not. And, you know, I mean, I was in grad school. Again, it's been a minute. And even when I was in grad school, there was very good consensus around the science. There wasn't a lot of good consensus around what you do. There was very good consensus around the science. There was no consensus in the political discourse at all. And even now you hear people saying, oh, this is not human cause. Okay. Doesn't matter anymore. No one cares. But you're wrong. Like, that's not what the science says. And so I think it just becomes kind of a moral imperative for me to be solving a problem that matters. I don't think everyone needs to work on climate science. There are other big problems. But so much of what we face in the human condition is linked to that, quite frankly. I mean, the 
major global conflict of the next century will absolutely be about access to water and future uninhabitable parts of the world that are currently inhabited and other really significant changes that I think we haven't really grappled with. So I feel really good about it. You know, my journey sort of continued. I was fortunate then enough to work for some of the largest solar companies, first for SunPower, which had the leading most efficient solar electricity panels in the world. So really a leading technology company, but in the space of solar. And I spent some time there in actually commercial sales, developing projects, which was a blast. Loved my team, loved what I was doing. I was new to sales, but that then led me to realize that in the US, you know, one of the biggest barriers to access was actually financing. And so that's how I landed at Solar City, ended up leading the product management group across all of Solar City. As we really became the largest, we went from 1,400 employees to 17,000 employees and became the largest installer and financier of residential solar all in the US. And then we were acquired by Tesla. So I spent a little bit of time at Tesla. And then after Tesla, the market was starting to move to lending and financing. And so a group of us from Tesla actually ended up, that had previously been part of the Solar City Energy Division, ended up founding and kind of growing Good Leap. And so that's been our roots. And I've been at Good Leap now for almost five years. So. Oh, wow. So you guys got together and, and started Good Leap together. Yeah. Good Leap was founded. Our CEO, Hayes Barnard, is a super visionary, kind of had, had been in the mortgage business, actually, but he was one of the first to prove that you could sell solar over the phone. And he and several of his executives had joined Solar City, kind of became the sales organization. Solar City sold both from an inside sales perspective as well as field sales, sold more solar than anybody else, for sure, in the country. And then, yeah, it was a group of the executives that just really got along great and trusted each other and really perceived our respective superpowers and wanted to find a way to work together again. That's super cool. Super cool story. I like to ask Alice, what's one of the most important things that you learned over the course of your journey, personally or professionally? And what was life like before learning it and after learning it? I mean, I would say for me, depending if you ask my 12-year-old, she would say it's probably one of my most irritating habits. But one of my sort of superpowers is I just love to learn new things. So I'm always learning. So it's very hard for me to point to before and after. I feel like I am constantly evolving. I am constantly becoming, I hope, becoming a better leader, figuring out how to bring lessons from, as you alluded to earlier, how to bring lessons from my personal life and in my professional development and vice versa. And I do find just a huge amount of interconnectedness. I was an athlete in college and I use some of the learnings that I got there. I use far more than I use anything I learned in any class in lots of years of school. I would say it's really hard for me to pick just one. I think recent evolution in terms of how to lead effectively and kind of trying to stay a little bit with the spirit of your title and kind of disruptive innovators, I would say one of the things I've learned is that, and this does carry through, it's just really hard to execute. I mean, it's something that I encountered in college even. Leading is very lonely. You have to have a perspective of leading for the organization that you're in, leading the team that you're in. But the balance of those things is often not obvious. It's often not locally optimizable in the sense that you often have to spread disappointment around. You are often having to make very difficult calls of, hey, I might love this person, but they're in the wrong seat or they're on the wrong bus. We're going to have to find them a new seat or a new bus. Those are some of the things that are just incredibly heartrending as a leader. And yet, if you take seriously your commitment to your mission and your organization and your desire to 
achieve really significant things, you have to be willing to make really hard decisions. And the corollary to that is you almost never make them too soon, meaning it's very easy to put off (laughs) something that is going to be really painful, whether it's personally or professionally or in terms of a relationship. And so I think that's one of the things that I've spent the most time learning and certainly has changed me the most is learning to be okay with disappointing people and learning to deliver hard messages sometimes and trying to do it with compassion and authenticity and trying to support people. But also, you know, one of the expressions we like to use is, you know, not asking fish to climb trees to, I think it's paraphrase of maybe it's Einstein. I'm not sure, but I don't want to misattribute my quote, but it certainly is. I didn't invent it for sure, but I do use it a lot, right? Learning to recognize when you are asking a fish to climb a tree is really critical. It's not a good recipe for success for anybody in the situation, not the fish, not the tree, and certainly not the leader who's expecting that, right? (laughs) Yeah, I like the analogies and metaphors that you use. They lighten it up a little bit, but not too much. And I'll tell you that the leaders that I respect the most, a lot of the things that we've talked about is getting comfortable being uncomfortable, right? Because It just happens once you, if you're trying to execute on a vision that is worthwhile and you're growing a business, like that's par for the course. It's just gonna, you know, for me, I have to get through the fear and onto the other side of that. It's still not easy, but it's something that now I just do. It's never like fun, but you just, you got to do it. Yeah, well, I think one of the things that I find myself coaching my people on a lot is also, again, as a former athlete, I've been really comfortable for a long time with the idea of you work hard, you make space, perfect practice makes perfect, you improve over time if you spend time on something. That was something that I've been very comfortable with for most of my life in terms of hurdles. What was a hard lesson for me to learn is how much emotional space and recovery time you have to allow around developing soft skills, right? So it's very easy, particularly in a techno- in technology teams, right? It's very easy for people who are excellent technologists to neglect the development of their soft skill, their, whether it's communication or people influencing or, you know, even something like, you know, one of the things that I, I laugh, but it's one of the most critical things, I think, for driving an effective organization is just framing the right decisions, figuring out what problem you're actually trying to solve, solving it, and then communicating effectively. Some people do that very naturally, and that's awesome for them. Some people, that's a skill that really has to be developed. And it's not something that you can just like fit in between 4 and 4.10 p.m. on a Friday afternoon. You really have to approach it just like you would if you were going to try to learn to, I don't know, ski or play the cello. If that's a skill you don't have and you want to be good at it, you really have to allocate time and you have to accept that you're going to be exhausted. So I'll be honest, like one of the things for me just as an example, over the last probably decade, I love people. I always see the best in people. That doesn't always serve me when I'm interviewing and recruiting because I'll talk to anyone and I'll envision, hey, you'd be great. I'd love to work with you, right? And it turns out that I'm sort of really projecting whatever it is, whatever skill set I'm looking for. And somebody's eager to come, you know. I was just going to say, like, I can fall prey to the same thing in looking to hire someone based on their potential and like what I see in them. And my business coach is always like, you have to hire someone for like what they can do for you like today. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a fine line, right? You are successful as a business leader by finding someone with untapped potential and letting them grow with you, right? 
But at the same time, yeah, if you read in and assume that they're going to punch so far above anything they've done before, that's probably a recipe for disappointment. But the thing that I was going to say about personal growth and allowing that emotional space is one of the things I had to learn is that takes energy. I have to plot in my week. When am I going to do that stuff where it's hard work to think about how am I going to design an interview process? How am I going to find the time to talk to the right number of people in order to find the perfect candidate, particularly for more senior roles, right? It gets really hard. And then also just allowing, okay, there's a recovery period that emotionally takes place. Just like if you were training for a marathon, you wouldn't not take rest days. Well, if you are a business person, and you are trying to acquire a skill, maybe it's having discussions of radical candor to quote Kim Scott, right? Maybe those discussions with your direct reports is challenging for you. You can't assume you're going to have one of those conversations and then roll right into another five hours of meetings and be effective, right? You have to schedule the time to go take a 30-minute walk or 45 minutes to collect yourself however you do or, you know, and and I think really being deliberate about where you're going to make space for that growth has been something that I've had to learn. I was used to kind of in my early career, just kind of careening from one stretch opportunity to another. And I was pretty good at that. But sometime when it became more around the soft skills and the emotional learning that I really needed to do as a leader, it just became much less tangible and therefore sort of harder for me to give myself the permission to take that space. And since I've started to do that, it's like, oh, wait, I can build these skills also. But it's not the same trajectory. And it's not as obvious that you need to like, take the rest day or the 10 minute equivalent of that. Yeah. It's great advice or experience for me because I feel like I'm still careening maybe, you know, and I am a lifelong learner. I subscribe to that. And I appreciate that you brought that up because I think that as a leader, if you're embodying that, it, it trickles down. Not all leaders do. The leaders I appreciate and have had on, appreciate it the most are and humble to boot, right? You know, I I think that's such a great combination when you're consistently seeking new knowledge, but you're humble at the same time and you're you're clearly embodying that as well. Well, you're also, you have small kids, by the way. There's no way to not careen when you're in the state, in that early stage of working parenting in particular. (laughs) That does feel true for me because there's two speeds. There's like work mode and dad mode. And, you know, that's, they just alternate like that. But ultimately, and I make time for things that are important for me. So I do think that I like, you know, I have a coach, I have a this, I have, I carve out some time. Ultimately, I'd like to carve out some more time, like you're saying, to grow those soft skills. I think it's just a great practice. It's a best practice, I, I think. What about, Alice, a time that, because I want to get into good leave. The last question I, I'll have for you just kind of in this arena would be, is there a time that sticks out in your mind as a a time that you were challenged or a project failed, or you had something that was particularly trying, but ultimately you took away kind of a profound lesson or it was a a profound period of growth. You know, all the time. I mean, another thing that I tell people, it's kind of feels like a a truism, but it, it really is so powerful. You never learn as much as fast as when stuff truly hits the fan. Right. You never learn fast, particularly in work, but I think anywhere when stuff is going super smoothly. Right. It's just not how things work. And I think it does also help, particularly if you're kind of a high achieving, you know, type A perfectionist type that often helps us all so much in the work environment. But it can also be incredibly crushing if you have those experiences of failure 
to me, I've found that kind of resetting that expectation of, okay, well, no matter how bad it is, the worse it is, whatever it is that I'm afraid of, no matter how bad it is, even if it goes terribly, I'm going to learn a lot. That sort of diffuses the anxiety a little bit and helps me lean in. Um, I happen to be a person that doesn't give up very easily. So, I mean, yes, I would say I have, you know, a hundred failures a year, probably. Most of them, fortunately, are pretty small. So, you know, I don't have to, it's not always super terrifying. I'm trying to think of a good example because, yeah, it does feel like there are plenty of them. Let's see. I would say when software, I mean, I'm a CIO, right? So I have a team of people trying to deliver software. And usually the projects that I get involved with personally tend to be those with the most hair on them or the most risk associated or the things that, you know, the team is having trouble dealing with for some reason, be it interpersonal or technical, et cetera. This maybe isn't a failure. I mean, it did end up turning around, but twice in the last four years, I've had to do a complete telephony re-implementation for our call centers. And after the first time, I said, I'm never doing this again. And after the second time, I was like, okay, I'm really done now. It's hard to even point to one thing that went wrong. But I find that, you know, to the extent that you have CTOs or CIOs or anybody that's dealt with this kind of large technical infrastructure project, they always go wrong in small or in large ways, right? And so you're always doing risk mitigation. You're always juggling a colossal number of very heterogeneous professionals, right? If you're lucky, you have a bunch of very talented line managers who are responsible for specific operational functions. And then you have a motley crew of very talented technical people and advisors, usually working for three or four different companies. If you're lucky, if you're not lucky, it's eight or nine companies. And all of those folks have, you know, umpteen meetings a week and 105 opportunities to miscommunicate. And so, you know, those projects, in some ways, those are kind of my bread and butter because unfortunately, they're kind of my superpower. So I end up spending a lot of time doing those projects. I had an early mentor say to me, I said, can I ever have a project that's not a mess? And he said, no, why would you work on those? Like, we'll give them to somebody else. <laughs> but that was a good reality check for me in my early 20s and my early technical career. So I would say the good leap, the last technical implementation of our current telephony system, and some of my colleagues may be listening and chuckling to themselves, we did have some serious challenges. We did some personnel changes in the middle of the project. There ended up being communication issues that resulted in just the wrong implementation. And that's ex in certain specific ways, right? In other ways, all of our customers were thrilled and things went much more smoothly than they had expected. But for me, again, I'm a perfectionist. I don't like finding out a year later, oh, you should have done it this way. Well, hang on a minute. Why didn't we? Oh, because we had the wrong person answering the questions and giving the technical specs. And, you know, was I appropriately engaged? Was I not appropriately engaged in that moment in oversight? It's always so, so hard. But the lesson is you become, I think, more and more confident in taking this lesson away. But it is always true, even earlier in your career. Again, the mistakes that you learn from are not terrible mistakes and they're inevitable. And kind of being able to accept where you are and move forward with the best possible path is always kind of the way to, to differentiate yourself as a leader. Like, okay, this was... 90% awesome, 5% not awesome. Let's not spend a lot of time worrying about it. Let's just move on, figure out where we are. That was sunk costs. And, you know, not everyone around you can do that. And so being able to be the person who's like, okay, I hear you. 
We're not going to spend too much time obsessing over that. We can do a retro if it makes everybody feel good and to make sure that we've all learned the lessons we want to learn. But you can't live in the past too much, right? You have to be willing to accept the hand that you've been dealt and play that as well as you can forward at all times. And that's kind of what makes you the most resilient and the most effective as a leader. Amen. Especially when we're innovating, right? Because there's, like you said, there's inevitably going to be failures, right? So it's about how am I quickly, you know, integrating that feedback? How am I making sure those feedback loops are there? How am I, you know, not getting caught up in the the muck of it or the feeling of, because it's not a failure depending on how you look at it even, right? Yeah. Transitioning a little bit, because I know one of my favorite books and one of the things that's a little bit funky about my role at GoodLeap is I do have both product management as well as kind of a more traditional CIO role that includes IT. And one of the things that makes me do is I really do bring a lot of kind of product management principles to the IT world, right? So one of my favorite books is The Lean Startup, really where Eric Ries really talks about failing fast and kind of identifying what your biggest sources of risk are and tackling those first, which is, again, when we talked about, you know, the worst instincts of all of us is to want to do the things that you're confident you can solve. The leadership challenge is to pull the risk forward so that you can fail fast or prove that you need to pivot. And where we can bring that to IT transformations as well as external product transformations, I think there's a really impressive payoff either way to the organization. Yeah, 100%. I, it's funny because I, I forgot I was even like citing or thinking of that book as I was talking. And I'm glad that we're kind of shifting gears into, you know, what you're up to at Good Leap and your role. I'm interested to learn more about your vision for the organization and maybe some of the initiatives that you guys are working on today. Yeah. So, I mean, I think Goodleap has had, we had extraordinary success. We came from the roots of a mortgage company based in California, but lending nationally. And as I kind of alluded to at the top of the hour, we talked a little bit about how the current iteration of the company had started as an insight that there was going to be a significant demand for loans specifically to finance solar investment. And so we had a lot of success in the first three, four years financing solar. And we did that by innovating a very easy to use platform and having really good business development relationships that were very long standing. But having a really easy to use platform that kind of in contrast to a lot of alternative ways, you know, anybody that's gotten a home equity line of credit kind of has stories of, you know, weeks or months of paperwork akin to a mortgage, basically. And we have a platform that approves your loan, your personal loan for solar in six to nine seconds, 70% of the time without any additional information needed. So that really changed the name of the game for a lot of solar providers and home improvement contractors where they're in a home giving somebody a quote, a person saying, oh, I don't think I can afford that. You know, having to go away and wait a month to see if the person finds a source of cash is very different from, oh, we have a partnership with a trusted lender. Would you like to see if you qualify for a flat monthly payment instead? So that was extraordinarily successful. However, that obviously was, you know, when you're very successful, A, you attract a lot of competitors, a lot of entrance to the market, and B, everyone in business knows people don't sit around. Business doesn't not change. So in the last couple of years, particularly in the last 18 months, first of all, the volatility of the federal interest rate, global interest rates, but the federal interest rates have not been kind to any fintech companies, right? Just the speed of changes um, has made it very difficult to kind of be able to react in the market. We've managed that risk better than most. So we feel really good about where we are. But the 
volatility and the subsequent changes, we had a few lean quarters and that really made us recognize that it was time to innovate again. And so I would say that at this point, we are still super devoted, super connected to our contractor partners, but we're also working through some strategies to diversify our sources of revenue to really leverage what we've learned in terms of building that really outstanding, very resilient, very reliable, highly automated platform. And how do we extend that to actually offering software so that we can extend our reach and do a better job of promoting growth in our contractor partners and ultimately really democratizing people's ability to invest in their homes and make their homes safer, smarter, more energy efficient, less energy consumptive places to live. So on the innovation space, I mean, obviously I can't share everything that we're working on, but I am very excited about it. We have lots of ideas about, you know, partly our roots as a mortgage lender, as well as a consumer finance lender. Those industries are, you know, there's some things that are very much in common, but there are other things that are very different in terms of regulation and how much space we have to innovate. But I think for us, it also really unlocks we have an unusual ability to kind of take the part of the company that works like a software, like really like a fintech unicorn and apply some of that innovative thought to the mortgage business where we also have a very mature mortgage operation. That's not very common. We've encountered over the last five, six years, we'll find companies where they've tried to stand up a technology company to disrupt mortgage, but then they don't have any of the mortgage origination volume or know-how to be able to test that and prove it at scale or vice versa, mortgage companies who try to innovate. But fundamentally, the truth of the matter is a lot of people who spend their whole career in mortgage are just not used to the rapid change of innovation and process change, right? Mortgage is a highly regulated marketplace. And so it takes a while. And I do think we have some outstanding leaders in our mortgage business at Goodleap who really are willing to kind of take those leaps of faith and start to invest in new technology. That's not very common across the industry. So that's been pretty exciting. The other thing that's obviously changed and just kind of really upended, if anybody in technology companies of any kind anywhere in the world in 2023, you have to be thinking about what are you doing about AI and large language models and how are those going to disrupt and change how you do business? And so it's not apples to everyone and not everyone is going to invest and create generative AI novel solutions, but everyone's business is going to be disrupted by what the potential is now at a much lower barrier to entry than was available. Frankly, even a month ago, things have changed, right? ChatGPT came out. It was a much more democratized access point to some elements of capability. And then as OpenAI and AWS and Google and others and Microsoft have come out with you know, evolving models. What I'm observing is that just changing the access point and enabling, frankly, just the innovation of enabling people to train, locally train add-ons to those models that are out there in English instead of writing code sort of opens the land of possibilities and massively democratizes who can have the insights about what do you do next. And so We are absolutely, like I'm sure every one of our competitors and everyone in every industry, looking, you know, pretty excitedly with where can we use that to dramatically change where and how we do business. And we think that, you know, we've got a really good track record of proving things that couldn't be done before. You know, Hayes, again, our CEO was one of the first to say, hey, I can sell solar over the phone. And the industry at the time in, I guess that would have been, I don't know, something like 2015, was just like, no, you can't, you're crazy. It was earlier than that, five, six years before that. But, you know, oh, that's nuts. You can't do that. Well, 
not only did he do that, but he became, you know, the largest call center based solar sales. And I think at one point we had, I don't know, two, 3,000 inside salespeople at Solar City selling solar nationally from a call center, mostly in Las Vegas. And so I think culturally, we are pretty confident in our ability to foresee and take advantage of some of these funky, I call it funky, people are going to laugh at me. You know, the, the AI, the concept of using natural language as a platform to access technology is pretty exciting, right? I mean, I think, you know, if you're a Star Trek junkie, you have Scotty at the, you know, Star Trek 4 when Scotty's like, computer, talking to his mouse and, you know, oh, a keyboard, oh, wait. And, you know, I was obviously a kid when I saw that, but we really are going to, and we're still not quite in that world, but we're getting there fast, right? And I think that really does change the nature of who and how you can innovate. Yeah, absolutely. I saw a model this past week from a company called Hiro out of Israel. It's healthcare specific, but they train the model to understand English. It's a different type of AI versus a lot of the intent-based models where you train it on different, you know, hypothetical kind of situations that it would encounter and the ability to spin it up within, you know, I mean, hours or a day or, you know, and then to have it understand the FAQ of the website of this, it's just, it's tremendous. And like the impact that, you know, these newer large language models are going to have on just knowledge management for organizations that have you know, just volumes of data, like the legal profession and other things like that. It's just going to be game changer. It's really exciting time. Well, yeah. And I think, you know, you have to be really thoughtful and really careful. And obviously in the fintech world, we're particularly conscious of all things around, you know, everything from compliance. Obviously, there's going to be compliance regulations that are not going to keep up because how could they? But also we have obviously specific, some specific concerns, just as the healthcare industry does, but we have some specific concerns around financial privacy and data and all of that, that we're being very thoughtful and very deliberative about. But yeah, the potential to go from, okay, six months ago, we were talking about what trainings were we going to provide and how were we going to design a decision tree to decide what knowledge-based article someone might need. And last week, instead, we just uploaded a 500 megabyte OneNote training document. And now we have an internal, you know, little widget, little virtual coach for our agents where they can just ask it a question in chat and it'll just find them what they need. And that's kind of unfathomable. And then you imagine what's that like once you hook it up to your corporate data, again, in a safe way. I think we can't ignore the danger of InfoSec. I think when you start to put stuff out, I mean, I'm super excited about this because I like to nerd out on all the edge cases too. I mean, I think you really have to watch out for model drift, you have to watch out for unintentional bias. You know, there's a whole bunch of gotchas in there that we nerd types like to worry about. But I think the potential is really kind of astonishing and hard to wrap our heads around and also really exciting. I agree. Super cool stuff. I mean, Alice, we only have a few more minutes here. I guess, you know, in this vein, right, one question would be just, you know, where do you see the fintech kind of world that you're living in, sustainability world going in the future? And or, you know, what do you think will be some of the biggest changes as time passes with that understanding that you don't have a, yeah. a crystal ball? Yeah, I think right now, it's funny. I mean, I think right now the crystal ball on AI is, is particularly ridiculously murky, right? I think that 
nobody really knows. All that we know is that things will change extraordinarily quickly. We're clearly on the cusp of some very dramatic changes, some of which are affecting us already today. I was listening to a really interesting podcast actually recently, and now I'm forgetting which one, which is really irritating because I really want to give them credit. But it was dealing with the ethics of AI and kind of AI being at this really fascinating turning point of the very beginning of dramatically empowering and disruptive technology. And will that technology be, when we get 200 years into the future, will we look back at this moment in time as having been a positive force for the good of humanity and, you know, all of our families and all of our descendants? Or will it be sort of scary and terrifying? And will there be a a preponderance of negative impacts that we'll start to look at? It was the beginning of the robot revolution, you know, like this was like the turning point. (laughs) Yeah. But I think that what was really the takeaway that I really liked was this was a historian of science commenting that when you look back on history, the times when massive technological change has been primarily extraordinarily additive and positive are the times when access to that technology is most democratized and not controlled by a very few powerful, wealthy interests. And so I'm hopeful that we will see that whatever changes we see will be very democratized and that people will find ways to solve problems that are either long tail problems, right? Medicine is a good example diseases that are very rare, but for the people that they affect. So it's very hard to get large amounts of funding, but for the people that they affect are absolutely devastating, right? Those kinds of problems, I hope, will have the cost of doing appropriate research and finding appropriate solutions massively reduced by better and better access to, you know, AI-based models, but data generally and kind of technological improvement. In the fintech space, I think there's, you know, a, a colossal amount of the current global financial markets that's, first of all, still really opaque. So that's a little bit scary. Like, I don't know if that's going to get a lot better. But I do think that it's also very antiquated, right? Just in our space alone, there's a lot of banking that still happens kind of with, you know, Excel files or worse, right? And so I think that making some of those changes has the potential to, again, democratize and increase access, right? If, if I can get access to homeowners that couldn't have made investments in their home to reduce their electricity bill because we have a cheaper, faster way for them to pay for solar, or we can recruit investors for whom there's a demonstrable return, that's a good thing. And that does spread the wealth, right? It's not a concentrating factor. So I think that's where my optimism is. I'm really excited to see what problems technology solves broadly. In the fintech space, I think we'll continue to see a ton of innovation. And I hope that we will stay increasing transparency as an antidote to over-regulation, right? I think regulation is important, but I think we get, a lot of times we get sort of reactive regulation that doesn't actually solve the core problems that it's intended to solve. And so I'm hopeful that what we'll see is the leveraging of technology and of the art of the, the vision and the art of the possible to make more transparent and increase kind of access to financing and investment possibilities as well in these kinds of vehicles. Yeah, fantastic insights, Alice. This has been really awesome. Last question for you would be if you could go back five 
or 10 years in time, even 15 years in time, what advice would you give your younger self? Well, let's see, five, 10 years. So I have a 12 year old and an eight year old right now. So I was really in it that time. So it's a little bit of a blur, but I think I decided a couple things. Prioritize more ruthlessly. I think I was still trying to do all the things at that point in my life. I was trying to be a perfect mom. I was trying to be a perfect leader, a perfect employee. And I think that's, you know, I, I did probably as well as I could balancing work and parenting and all the things. I had a very supportive partner, but I think I always felt at work in particular that I was sort of chasing kind of a professional grim reaper waiting to see me fall down. And that was just not helpful at all. That doesn't give you more time, right? I think the other thing I would say is, and we've talked a little bit about the learning new skills and kind of accepting that personnel decisions are critical and hard, but they deserve your time and attention. But I would say the second major piece of advice, other than prioritizing ruthlessly and unapologetically, I guess I should say, would also be, you know, this idea of learning something new every quarter or every year. I, there's big publicized versions of it, right? Mark Zuckerberg taking up MMA or Chinese or whatever it is. And it gets a rap as being kind of a problem of privilege because a lot of us, particularly working parents, just don't have a lot of time to exercise hobbies. But I think trying to find something small that you can learn, even if that's learning to do something with your kids, right? Maybe your kid has an artistic side that you haven't discovered yet. But I think trying to stretch your brain and learn something new reminds you that we can always stay young and creative. And that, as you said before, translates absolutely into all the parts of your life. If you let yourself get sort of static and stuck, that will also translate to all parts of your life. And so I think doing things, even when you're exhausted, even when you're in the grind, to try to, to just do something small, even if it's, you know, taking, I don't know, an evening art class once a year with some friends or something just to get out of your comfort zone and do something a little bit different, I think is really important to hanging on to yourself and also to remembering. Remember, I started out with saying authenticity is so important. I don't know if you can remember or discover who you are and who you're becoming if you're not constantly curious and constantly learning. Love it. Drop the mic. Alice, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for being on today. Thank you. It's a real treat. Everybody who is on my team will be unsurprised that I enjoy having a little soapbox to share some hopefully useful thoughts and insights. And I, you know, really enjoy the other speakers that I've heard in your podcast as well before. So thank you so much for letting me be a part of it. I'm really honored and humbled. Appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm sure they will. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. And we will catch you all next week. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.